Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 45, a conversation with Kyra Kandi. As many of you likely already know, Kyra was one of the four team members on the U.S. climbing team, representing climbing for the very first time ever on the Olympic stage in 2020. It was great to chat with her about her experience preparing for and competing in the Olympics, but also her efforts in, of course, climbing advocacy. Kara began climbing around the age of 11, and shortly after finding climbing at a friend's birthday party, she joined the local youth team, Ainston Pell, Minnesota, and began competing. Outside of competition, her team would take trips to crags in Minnesota and South Dakota, and that's when she started to become more acquainted with the Access Fund and the Minnesota Climbers Association and their respective missions to protect and steward local climbing resources around Minnesota. Since then, she has participated in several climbing festivals, teaching clinics, and becoming more well-versed in the influence these events can have on educating new climbers on outdoor ethics and how they can serve as a welcoming and inclusive environment for anyone that may be a new or seasoned climber. Kyra has taken it even a step further in her role as a member of USA Climbing's Board of Directors, where she is able to help steer the direction of the organization and further serve competitive climbers' interests. And you know, many of the conversations I have on the show often center around what's happening in our outdoor climbing spaces, but there's a whole other world out there of climbing advocacy where gyms, competitions, and festivals are just as important as well. And that's where people like Kyra come in. So whether it's at the Olympics, with USA Climbing, or through her personal climbing endeavors, Kyra is super proud to be an ambassador for the sport, and we're so stoked to have her around. So with that, let's get into it here. Please enjoy my conversation with Kyra Condi. All right. Well, I, I love talking to fellow Midwesterners originally and hearing their climbing origins and their climbing stories. And I, um, I know that you're from Minnesota. So could you bring us up to speed a little bit on uh, yeah, where you grew up in Minnesota and when you were introduced to climbing? Yeah. So I started climbing a little later than a lot of like, I feel like my other peers in, climber, in climbing. I started when I was 11 and I was at the local <laughs> climbing gym. And I know, which is late compared to a lot of my competitors, which is kind of, yeah, which is nuts. Like, I don't know. I see kids nowadays who are like seven years old. I'm like, dang, well, you have me beat. Um, But 
Yeah, I started at a birthday party, actually, at the local gym. Uh, I went in for a friend's birthday party, and the guy who was leading the birthday party just kept showing me climbs to climb, and I kept doing them. And then he told me about the climbing team after that, and so that's how I started. Okay. Where in Minnesota was that? That was in St. Paul. Uh, I'm from kind of Twin Cities areas, so I've climbed at the gyms in St. Paul and Minneapolis. My understanding is like you started kind of competing almost like right away, like maybe right before your teenage years or right after you got started climbing. Yeah, I started competing almost right away. I My team was like going to regionals. And so I was introduced to that side of climbing and competition kind of immediately. Uh, both my coaches, though, were definitely big outdoor climbers and they would, you know, plan trips to the local areas around Minnesota and um, also to South Dakota. And so we'd get outside too as a team. Oh, cool. Yeah. I was wondering like how you sprinkled in the, uh, the outdoor climbing too, cause I don't want to put you in a, you know, we're talking a lot about like indoor climbing and gym climbing tonight today, but, uh, I don't want to put you in just a box of just being an indoor climber. Cause I, I know you certainly compliment that with being outside. So yeah. What was that experience like climbing around outdoors in, uh, in Minnesota? Yeah. I think my first coaches definitely did a really good job of instilling the values of outdoor climbing in our team in general. Um, like mm-hmm. we would do a team trip to, um, yeah, South Dakota every year um, and sport climb there and then get her out to the Minnesota crags like sandstone, which is, I mean, it's not that close actually when I think about it, like everything is like two and a half hours away in Minnesota, I feel like. Um, and then we'd also go to Willow River. One of my coaches was really big with the MCA, um, like Minnesota Climbers Association and would rebolt things and, you know, switch out gear and things like that. And so I feel like yeah. I was exposed to that really early. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I, I had uh, the executive director from the MCA on, oh, geez, I don't remember what episode number that was, but many, uh, many episodes ago, I got to learn more about Minnesota climbing and stuff. And um, I did a trip to the Boundary Waters a couple of years ago, did some canoeing for a week and, and then uh, stopped at, um, oh, what's that state park called? Starts with a T and it's got like the, the cliffs right on Lake Superior. I don't know if that rings a bell at all. Oh man, I probably haven't been there since I was a kid. So, yeah. uh, Tedaguchi Tete State Park. Oh yeah, Tedaguchi. Yeah, uh, we yeah. used to go to the Boundary Waters all the time too. Actually, when I was a kid, super nice. cool place. It's such a cool place. I mean, climbers, non-climbers alike, I, I would recommend that place to anyone and just go paddle and canoe for a few days. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we used to do a yearly trip every year. So awesome, right on. Um, yeah, so St. Paul. Uh, when did you make the transition over to the, the move over to Salt Lake City? Uh, that wasn't until pretty recently. I, I moved here in 2019, right before the Olympic qualifier. Um, okay. Mostly because we didn't have a speed wall in Minnesota. And so I needed to be able to train speed and competition style boulders before that event. And yep. so kind of just whirlwind moved here beginning of November. And then that qualifying event was the end of November. So um, it was quite the quite the whirlwind and pretty optimistic, but it worked out definitely in my favor. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you moved there for like the whole purpose of moving there was for the training facilities for the for the Olympics. Yeah, exactly. I saw on your website that this is we're gonna get off climbing just here for just for a second, but um, I saw on your website that you aspire to go to vet school someday and be a small animal veterinarian. Um, have you started that process at all, or is climbing still your primary focus? Um, kind of actually. So I finished my undergrad degree from the University of Minnesota in 2018, so I already have that out of the way. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't tried to apply to vet school or anything yet, uh, just because I don't have the ability to commit the four years yet, but I did just start an online master's program that's in shelter medicine. So it's a veterinary, it's through the veterinary school of at the university of Florida, Gainesville, actually totally online. Um, 
so that's like kind of what I'm doing right now. I kind of miss that balance of school and climbing and kind of just body and mind, I guess. Um, yeah, so yeah, I'm sure it provides I'm, a nice balance. Exactly. I'm psyched to have that again. It's not, you know, I have like one or two classes at a time per semester. So should be done in about two years with that. And then, you know, I probably won't try to apply to vet school until for a couple more years now still. Will you still be uh, competing? Just still aspire to be competing while, while you're doing that as well? I don't know if it's possible to compete while I'll be in vet school, you know, so um, definitely going to try to more line that up with when I want to start climbing more outside and, you know, focus on that type of thing. Definitely plan on climbing hard, I guess, while I'm in, in school, but uh, sure. maybe not tra- like traveling to compete as much because it's just so hard to take that time off. Right, right. I'm going to talk about the Olympics just a little bit more. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, are you going to try to go for the next Olympics, next round of Olympics here in a few years? And um, I just wanted to, yeah, just curious how that might line up with uh, your school or educational aspirations. Yeah, definitely. I think um, this format is a little bit more interesting. It's the Boulder lead format instead of the um, combined completely. So mm-hmm. speed climbing is obviously separate, which is honestly really exciting as well for the speed climbers because now they'll have their own um, medal at the event at the Olympics, but, mm-hmm. uh, the format, yeah, it's interesting. And so it's hard to tell exactly how to train for it since it does use a point system of like how far you get on boulders versus how far you get on lead. So it kind of favors lead climbing. And so that's definitely kind of why I've been focusing on lead this year, just to get better at lead and hopefully prepare for next year. And I wasn't as psyched in competing this year, just post Olympics, um, being only, you know, just over a year out. Right. And so I'm definitely really psyched for this next year. All right. Great. Yeah. Before we get into kind of the thick of this uh, advocacy talk that I want to kind of focus the conversation on, um, um, I just want to learn a little bit more about the Olympics and the structure and, and the qualifying process and stuff and, and whatnot. Cause I'm, I'll humbly admit that I'm kind of ignorant to the whole thing. I'd love to learn some more about it, but you know, first I want to just congratulate you and the rest of the team on being the first ones to represent the U S in the Olympics for the very first time. It's a very novel thing. I mean, how did that feel for you and the rest of the team? Just being in this position of, I mean, I guess kind of making history and being part of something that's, that's completely brand new. How was that for you? I think it's definitely something that we all like didn't take lightly, you know, like we were showing climbing to the world for the first time. We kind of felt like, um, like at least on the Olympic stage in the Olympic world. And I, I think we had such a great group of athletes, you know, we all, um, like everybody who qualified all 20 athletes, all 20 men and 20 women did are like amazing ambassadors for the sport. And I don't think we could have done a better job to like show climbing, <laughs> you know, um, it's, but that's definitely something that really motivated that goal in particular. Like I knew that if I didn't qualify, that there would be another chance in a few years, but I was like, man, I really want to be in the first one. <laughs> like it's the first time climbing's ever included. Like that's awesome. And that's something I definitely took into account when I wanted to qualify. Yeah, that's great. I mean, like we said earlier, you started competing very early on, if not just right out the gate. And, but at that time there was no Olympics to, to look forward to or set as a goal. You know, you didn't have like the the poster of like the, the Olympian climber, the Olympic climber on your wall to like kind of look forward to and aspire to that just didn't exist at that time. So like how far before the Olympics started, like when did it come into your purview as something that you wanted to strive for? That's a great question. Um, so in, I remember in 2013, we were doing the first Olympic push of trying to get climbing into the Olympics. And mm-hmm. then we actually got rejected from the 2020 Olympics. And so then everybody started looking at 2024. Yeah. Okay. And I think that happened in 2016, we got rejected. 
No, no, that was 2015 we got rejected. And then 2016, they announced that we were going to be included because Tokyo had room for more sports or something like that. And so it was like completely not on my radar that it was a possibility for Tokyo 2020 to be a thing again. And then that was going to work out really well with my school schedule. I finished, I finished university in 2018, was going to have that year to do more of the World Cups than I had ever done before. So I did like four World Cups that year and then know what I needed to prepare for for the next year and then try and actually qualify. And so it just worked out really well. That's definitely, I think it was 2016 when I started like actually focusing on that. Um, or whenever it was announced, it was somewhere around there. And then, yeah, as far as like just goals in general, I feel like my goals always were around, you know, World Cups and World Championships just because we didn't have the Olympics to look forward to. Uh, but I always right. was a huge Olympic fan. and would watch the things that were like most similar to climbing, like gymnastics um, growing up. Yeah, of course. So how does that qualifying process work? I mean, you, you just said you did four World Cups in one year and does that, does that all count towards your qualifications to get on this team? Like that's another part of this that I'm just not totally in tune with. So could you give us a snapshot on how you all qualified for it and how the structure works of the whole competition? Because I know it is changing, like you said, for, for the next round. Yeah, totally. So how we qualified was on the world stage. There was no like U.S. team trials, you know, like there is in gymnastics or something. So we had to either qualify at the world championships, which is how Brooke Rabbit 2 qualified. And then the next op- chance to qualify was at the Toulouse um, qualification event, which you qualified for by doing well throughout the entire World Cup season. So that one you did kind of have to do the World Cups to do well at um, and, and then, you know, then do well at that competition. Then the last way that we could qualify was there's a bunch of continental championships. So Asian, uh, African, Pan-American, European. And so we were only able to go obviously to the Pan-American continental championships and then the winner of that event also got an Olympic berth. Uh, and it's a little different this year, um, or it's going to start next year, I guess. Um, but world championships will be the first way that you can qualify. Then it'll be the continental championships. And then there's this Olympic qualifying series, which is kind of like multiple Olympic qualifying events. And it's actually going to be skateboarding, surfing and climbing all together, all like Olympic qualifying events. Oh, wow. And then it's basically a certain number of people qualify at each, each event. Okay. How high do you have to place to qualify? In the last year, so like in for to qualify for Tokyo 2020, you had to get kind of, it was like, like top 10 at world championships. And then it was top six at Toulouse. And then it was the winner of the continental championships. And it's going to be a little different this year. I believe it's top three at world championships will qualify. And this is in the Boulder lead. And then the winner of each of the continentals will qualify. And then, the remaining will all qualify through the Olympic qualifying series. Gotcha. Okay. There was only four of you on the team. I and mean, how do they, I guess you know, they narrowed it down by who, who placed and everything, but how many, how many other climbers were there that you had to compete with to, to get your spot? Yeah. So we had a maximum too. So we had to, if two men and two women per country were allowed and then only 20 spots total per gender. Okay. So um, Japan, for example, that has an amazingly strong team of, you know, six athletes who all could have qualified only got two athletes there. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the same for the next year as well in 2024. Okay. Yeah. I was, gonna, I was wondering if they would expand the team at all beyond, uh, two, two male, two female. Yeah. Sadly, that one's not up to us actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. That was definitely one of the most nerve wracking things with, um, 
qualifying for Tokyo was that we did just have a really strong women's team. And so there was like kind of this internal competition between which of us were going to qualify as well as, you know, having to actually qualify on the world stage. Right on. Well, congratulations again. Uh, I look forward to seeing y'all um, yeah, compete again here soon. All right. I'd say let's yeah, let's transition into the uh, the advocacy part here and why I have you on today. I'm really excited to get to talk to you about advocacy and because I think a lot of people might not associate indoor climbing with advocacy necessarily. I'm making somewhat of an assumption here, I suppose, but I think maybe the, the natural tendency might be to just think that indoor or competitive climbers might not have as much interest or stake in the game when it comes to advocating for climbing. But in the end, like you said earlier, you're an ambassador for the, for the sport. You're so excited to be an ambassador for the sport and represent U.S. and the Olympics and such. And um, But you also spend a lot of time outdoors as well. So I like to debunk that myth a little bit, if in if it even is a myth. I want to make sure that like I'm not putting a blanket statement out there. I'm hoping I'm not totally off my rocker with this. But I'm curious when you first heard about the Access Fund and what they do and when you started to become familiar with climbing advocacy. I think I really became aware of the access fund through the Minnesota climbing association. Um, just because that is such a great organization in Minnesota. Uh, and I was like really young in the climbing gym. And so most of the people who I climbed around and were friends with were all a lot older than me and even members of the MCA or on the board and stuff like that. And so I think that's really how I got my first introduction to the, the access fund. Like we definitely have shirts that all like, from all the way back that I can think of, you know, that I would get that from that were access fund MCA shirts. So I yeah. think I've been aware of it for a really long time. That's great. Did you, uh, when you went out on those outdoor trips, to South Dakota and such, I mean, were any of these things talked about on those trips about how to, I don't know, behave responsibly outdoors and how it might be different from climbing inside as opposed to outside, anything like that? Yeah, definitely. And I remember we would also go to the cleanups of the climbing areas as a team and, um, you know, get more people to come and things like that and have, there's a Minnesota ice fest, you know, and afterwards getting all the ice, the thing that flooded the cliff, like all off the cliff and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, definitely have a lot of memories just doing things like that in the climbing areas around Minnesota. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's a great introduction. Starting, starting young for sure. You have one of the most arguably most prominent and successful local climbing organizations in the country right there in Salt Lake, the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance. Um, have you had a chance to ever get out and get involved with them at all? I haven't as much with the SLCA just because since moving to Salt Lake, I've um, just been really busy with the competitions and preparing for the Olympics and stuff. And then also COVID, just kind of mm -hmm. avoiding going outdoors as much as possible just to lessen the impact on potentially hospitals and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So definitely something that I want to get involved in more just when I have a more reliable schedule just so that I can you know, actually commit to things like reliably and often. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But uh, I love seeing what they're doing. And, you know, I think it's had a huge impact on the areas around here because Salt Lake has been kind of a hot spot for really not great uh, outdoor. I'm losing my words a little bit, but like people are chipping in Cottonwood Canyon and also in Joe's and, you know, just not taking care of the areas as well as we should. Are you, are you privy to the access concerns of Little Cottonwood right now and how the SLCA is getting involved with that and the whole like tram and widening of the road and all that um, on that whole project? Yeah, I um, attended a talk at the University of Utah, actually, um, that was put on by 
a women's group at the University of Utah, and they talked all about how the condola actually won't even solve the, you know, access issues to the ski resorts. And then on top of that, yeah, I guess for those who don't know that there is this gondola proposition for to put this huge gondola in that'll be four hundred million dollars or something like that, uh, to, from the base of Little Cottonwood all the way up to Alta Snowboard, which with Alta and Snowbird, which would only you know help in that small portion of the year where people actually ski and it won't really change the traffic and it's just terrible going to be a gigantic eyesore and cause constant sound in the valley and take this really beautiful place that we have that's so close to the city here and just make it not as amazing so (laughs) yeah and your your teammate nathaniel coleman uh was played a big role in that in that short film home crag that early nutrition put together and produced and i'm sure you're familiar with that and if you haven't checked that out, if the listeners haven't checked that out, I definitely recommend it. It's a really short film, but it definitely breaks down of uh, yeah this project and what the impacts might be of it. Yeah, I think Little Cottonwood in general is just a really, like, I don't personally love the style of the climbing there, but the fact that it exists and it's like this amazing climbing area that's um, just, you know, 15 minutes away from the city is just kind of insane. It's like, I don't know anywhere else that really has something quite like that where you're in such a big city and then you can go so close by and have such, you know, world-class boulders. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, having that close access to, to that, to a major metropolitan area like Salt Lake, it's, it's really probably unmatched. I, I also can't think of anywhere else like that. I mean, like New York, you know, New York city has like some boulders, like inside the city boundaries and such, but something like little Cottonwood Canyon being yeah, a very, very short drive outside the city limits um, is pretty impressive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's definitely just better options as far as, you know, supporting the bus system or things like that to avoid the traffic issues. And honestly, just dealing with the traffic issues. Like, I, I, I skied this year and it's bad some days, but it's not that bad. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not worth a $400 million gondola. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna link to Home Crag in the show notes so folks can check that out and get more privy to yeah what that project's all about. And I'm sure the SLCA has got plenty of literature on it um, on their website as well. So make sure folks can get hold of that info. I had a whole episode dedicated to talking about gyms and indoor climbing with a couple of gym owners uh, many episodes ago um, with Paul Guerrero, um, Guerrero, excuse me, of uh, Ascent Climbing out east in Pittsburgh and such, and then Hillary Harris with Evo, um, two yeah, really well-rounded, experienced climbers in, in the indoor world. And yeah, I got to learn a bunch from them about climbing gyms and what they're doing with their programming to educate new climbers and other climbers and who might spend much of their time indoors and how the gyms can set them up for success if they do choose to go outside with gym to crag programs and such. And wanted to see if you've had a, a nice perspective or have gotten um, a perspective over the years and, and how indoor gyms are doing with their communicating this kind of information on this topic. Yeah, I think the things that I've noticed have a really good impact on that is kind of the festivals, especially the well-run festivals in the climbing areas. I know they, they make the areas pretty busy for those weekends that they're there, but I think they usually do a really good job of teaching, especially new climbers, how to respect the climbing areas and, you know, the ethics of the area and things like that. Um, and they usually, you know, encourage people to... Um, clean up after themselves, clean up anything they see, stay on trails, all those things. And at least all the festivals I've been to, like the Joe's Valley Festival, I went to one in Bishop, the Flash Foxy one a long time ago. Um, All of those have, 
I feel like done a really good job of teaching those things to, to new climbers, especially. Have you had a chance to, to kind of sit in that front seat and help direct some of this or are you kind of just participating on the periphery or curious if you've been like directly involved with that? Uh, I've taught clinics at some of those festivals. Um, outdoor bouldering clinics are kind of scary though. So I'm not sure it's something that I'm going to continue <laughs> doing a lot of. <laughs> what, what's scary um, about it? Um, just usually a lot of the easier climbs at these places are really tall. And so yeah. when you're, you're talking about new climbers, it's just like pretty scary to get, um, you know, a bunch of newer climbers on really tall stuff, even if it's easy, just because, sure. you know, teaching the basics of falling and stuff is one thing in a gym and then something totally different outside. And especially it's definitely a great learning opportunity to, you know, t- talk about pla- pad placement, um, spotting, things like that. Um, but it's not something that I would say I'm actually even an expert in, you know, I started pretty, pretty young and a lot of those things came pretty naturally. And so, um, yeah, definitely. I'd rather teach a lead climbing clinic outside. <laughs> Top yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Totally. So the festi- yeah, festivals. <laughs> Before we started recording, you said you were just in San Francisco for the Woman Up Festival. Um, and I, and I said, I, I had never heard of that before. Could you, uh, yeah, share a few notes on that and your experience there and if you had a chance to participate in anything like that at that festival? Yeah, so this one was an indoor uh, festival. It was at one of the Touchstone Gyms in California. And um, it just is a really great community building event. I think it's somewhere where everybody is just extremely extroverted and trying to meet people and being really friendly and nice. And I think it's just a great introduction to the climbing community um, just because I think especially as a woman, it can feel really intimidating occasionally to go to the gym, especially at least where I'm from in Minnesota, like everybody was super strong and um, like kind of young adult men, you know? And I think if I had been more less clueless as a kid, I maybe would have been way more intimidated. And so I think events like this are just amazing to get more and more people involved in the sport. And that's definitely the type of advocacy that I would say I'm far more involved in. Like I've definitely done a lot of stuff in the outdoors as well, but haven't led as much. Um, Mm -hmm. But the type of advocacy that I'm super, super psyched on is getting more people involved in climbing who maybe don't have the access to it that, that I did being, you know, upper middle class white and, you know, from suburbia, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, do you have anything else lined up in that, in that, uh, in this area or any other festivals that you're planning on going to this year or in the coming year? Not currently, but I get to do a lot of that stuff through being on the board of USA climbing and on the athlete commission. I'm also on the international federation um, of sport climbing's athlete commission and on the USOPC's athlete commission. So I get a lot of, um, I get to hear a lot of the things about what's happening and, you know, trying to advocate for athletes and, um, and that goes for all athletes. So I, awesome. that's yeah. I'm really excited about. I got a couple of, yep. I got a couple of notes here about your board position with USA climbing. So we'll definitely, uh, circle back on that here shortly. I had another thing, I guess on that is, um, I think also with my, my backstory and having had a spinal fusion and, um, being able to talk about that and kind of come at climbing from like the physical disability side of things. Um, I've definitely had a really good voice in that community. Um, and just, you know, even just being able to encourage people that they can try climbing, even though they maybe think it's not something that is meant for them, uh, has been something that's really, really special and something that be going to the Olympics has actually really given me that voice in that community, like hugely, because I think I was the first person with a major spinal fusion to qualify for the Olympics. And so now if people, you know, are need to get this scoliosis fusion surgery, 
and they Google athlete with scoliosis, I'm like the first person who comes up, which is pretty cool because mm-hmm. uh, I get a tons of messages about it. Like I play soccer and I'm getting this like for surgery. Am I going to be okay? And all those things. And um, I think it's just really cool because it's this opportunity to get more people into sport. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks for mentioning that. I wouldn't have uh, made that connection between like, yeah, you're advocating maybe for um, or, or showing adaptive folks that um, climbing, climbing it as an option. That's really cool. You're hearing from other athletes as well. It's having a similar type of surgery. I did read up on that. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was at the gym the other week and it was like six males and um, one female walked in and, you know, just doing, doing almost, I'm coming up on almost 50 episodes here. And I've learned a lot from a lot of different climbers and a lot of different perspectives. And I couldn't help but to sit there and wonder like what, might be going through her head because she it felt like she was being a little reserved being a little quiet and i was like man how does that feel to just be in a, in a room with just males and you're the only female here trying to trying to participate and and fitting into this whole mix so yeah it's definitely something that's on top of my mind whenever i go to the gym now yeah i think I was definitely, like I said, pretty clueless about that when I was a kid. I think I just thought I was one of the boys or like something when I was 12 years old and climbing in the, you know, bouldering cave with all these, these bros, you know, um, (laughs) and that's absolutely not how they were thinking of me at the time, but I was totally clueless to those things. And I think Mm -hmm. that definitely helped me stay really motivated and really psyched. Um, but I could see if I had started when I was older things like that, that it would have been a lot harder to feel accepted in that space. And I think that started actually even really wearing on me as I got older. I remember trying to start root setting at the gym and kept not getting texted whenever they would start root setting. And then I would hear that they were setting and I was like, why didn't anybody tell me and have to show up at at the gym and just start setting because I didn't get told that they were going to do it and things like that. Um, That's really started bothering me as I got 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 older and started noticing it. but that's definitely something that I think Instagram has actually really helped with. I think strong women on Instagram have like a bunch of climbers and women in general have been able to really show that being a female athlete is really cool and something that uh, people can strive for. Cause I think for a long time that was also frowned upon to be, you know, buff even. So yeah, um, right. now people like, it's just so accessible that information and, how to train even like that's something I try to do on Instagram is show a lot of my training so that people kind of have access to what they might, what they could do to get stronger and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're yeah, kind of making waves in the pool there with that. And yeah, the, there's the positive side to social media and Instagram here too, right? It's not, I think it, you know, it catches a bad rap for a number of reasons, but there are the positive sides like you, like, like the example you just gave that can give people inspiration to, yeah be be a better climber be a better person and just get more informed on some of these more social issues um, that are in in the community that they might not see otherwise but if they can get some get some background get a lot of education on it through social media hey like i'll i'll agree to that yeah totally i I completely agree it's just such a good way to get different perspectives that you maybe wouldn't have gotten uh you know without that easy access on through instagram or tiktok or whatever right What's the general sentiment among your peers when it comes to advocacy or stewardship or climate access? Are there other other folks in your in your in your space talking about these things? I would say everybody who I know is definitely excited about it. Um, I think a lot of people probably just don't really know how to get into it as much. Um, that that would definitely be the thing that I say would be the one barrier to entry is like where to start. There's just so many things 
that you could help with or could do or like it's a lot of coulds and then i think that gets overwhelming you know um and so yeah just simple ways to start and help out i think is um a big thing that could help even get more and more people involved because i think it's something almost everyone i know is interested in Mm -hmm. what are what, what do you think those easy those easier barriers to entry are what's what's the easiest way to get involved yeah, I mean, I think those like community events, like, yeah, like I said, how I started getting involved with MCA when I was a kid was those cleanups of climbing areas. So, you know, a cleanup, little cottonwood event, things like that um, would be a great way to just get people involved and then get introduced into the SLCA or the MCA and the access fund in general. And I think those types of things really get people involved and then they hear what else is happening. And, you know, then you you get to know people and you're more likely to go to the next one and stuff like that. And I think you know, and then using Instagram, getting more people to come and get involved and using the gyms, those spaces, I think are all things that can get more and more people psyched on doing those types of events and even just doing it then on their own when they're already out there. Absolutely. So this leadership role you have with the, uh, with the board on the board of directors of USA Climbing, uh, how long have you been on the board and what have your responsibilities been uh, since being a board member? Yeah, I joined the board in 2018, and so I'm an athlete athlete representative on it, which means that we had to get elected to that position. Um, and then even since then, the number of athletes on the board or and any committee within an NGB, with a, which is a national governing body, uh, there is a law passed that actually there has to be 33 and a third percent uh, representation of athletes on those boards. And so now we have five athletes on the board. Uh, it used to just be two of us. And so we've been involved for a while. It's me and Jesse Gruper, actually, who's been crushing it on the World Cups this year. He just won his second lead World Cup um, of the year. Yeah. Um, and he's great. And we've been on the board since 2018 together. And we do a lot of things. It's a lot of advocating for the athlete opinion as well as listening to long financial um, meetings <laughs> that I don't fully understand, you know, because I'm not a finance major. Um but then we approve budgets and stuff like that and important documents and also just talk about the direction that we want USA Climbing to go in general and how to do yep. that and what our strategic plan is. Yep. Yeah, I take uh, I work for a nonprofit as well, so I'm very familiar with board structure and board diversity and things. And I take the minutes for a lot of the board meetings and stuff, and I'm right there in the same boat when the financial piece comes up. Like, <laughs> like what? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's why. You have a diverse board of people with different skill sets, I guess. Exactly. That's a very good point. Um, it's a point I've, I think I made in the last episode about yeah, board diversity, different skills, the people with the finance skills or the marketing skills or um, PR, whatever it might be. You know, diversifying your board in that way is very important. And yeah, like profit and loss spreadsheets, like phew, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, how long? How long are the terms? Do you have? There's uh, probably term limits. They're technically, I think, four-year terms, but um, my position just changed since I'm now the USOPC, with it, which is the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee Athlete mm -hmm. Commission rep to USA Climbing. Uh, and so that also gives you a board position. So my board position switched from athlete representative to USOPC athlete representative. So now I have a, the same term as that term is. Okay, gotcha. So how has this leadership role provided opportunities to enhance education about things like, I don't know, the Access Fund's mission or or the connection to uh, 
the para-athletes and adaptive folks um, and other, any other social issues that you mentioned earlier, like facing our climbing areas indoor, uh, indoor or outdoor? Yeah, so, I mean, something that we put together as a board that was brought forward first by Jesse Gruber, and then I helped him with um, getting basically the committee together is uh, we now have a diversity, equity, and inclusion committee, which started in 2019. Um, so like started working on that kind of right away as soon as we were on the board. And then now that's, you know, a full functioning committee that has been going strong for three plus three-ish years. Um, and so that was something that was really cool to be a part of. And I was on the committee for a while there and then had too many commitments now. And, you know, my opinion was definitely not the one that I wanted to be um, at all forefront on that committee, obviously. So um, de- taking a backseat and just advocating for what the committee brings to the board now at this point um, is something that I guess was really exciting to be a part of. Um, and then what else are we working on? A lot of things that just honestly affect the athletes and um, resources and bringing resources in, like having sports psychologists or nutritionists and things like that, just to keep athletes healthy, both mentally and physically. Yeah, that's really cool. Like the psychology parks, I'm sure. I mean, as climbing is just in general, a big mental, mental game, um, but the pressure of competition and competing on such a large stage and, and things like that. Um, yeah. Could you, could we explore that just a little bit more and, and how um, this, the, psych, the, the psychological component of this has played into your board role? Yeah. So I work with a sports psych through the USOPC. Like they have sports psychs on um, retainer, I guess, um, <laughs> for the athletes of Team USA to use, which is like really incredible. Um, but, you know, something that I'm involved in on the board is, you know, talking about the hierarchy of things that would be useful for the team from my athlete perspective, you know, like, do we need another, like a speed specific coach or do we need a, um, you know, bigger training center? Like all those types of things are things that we get to really discuss. And, you know, if a full-time mental coach would be really useful and things like that, you know, but I think using the resources we have through the USOPC and like being the athlete commission rep, um, I get to know what those resources are and bring them to the attention of USA climbing and what athletes can use and how we can better tell the athletes that those are there and available to them is something that's important right now. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's really cool. I think a lot of sports seem to be recognizing the importance of that more and more. And yeah, with mental health and post, if someone retires from a sport, I think post, um, post retirement is being, is being focused on. I think there's been, I, I'm, I'm thinking of football is like specifically with, uh, players like later on just being, you know, hit so many times. This doesn't happen in climbing, of course, but just, just following up afterwards and, and making sure that yeah, things are, things are okay. And they have resources that's, um, that they need. Post, um, yeah, the US, the US OPC does a bunch of really cool stuff with that. They um, have resources for athletes to get jobs, maybe in sport or otherwise, just because they mm-hmm. have so many people who donate to the US OPC and stuff like that. So there's a lot of networking and connections. Um, and so if you say you're an electrical engineer and a cross-country skier, maybe there's somebody who you know donates to Nordic, like Nordic skiing every year and they are also the owner of an electrical engineering uh, you know, company or something, then cool. they yeah. list those to Olympians first or things like that. And so there's a lot of connections through the USOPC that they have 
for athletes even post-retirement, which is really cool as well. Yeah, that's great. Definitely thinking outside the box and thinking long-term uh, sustainability for these athletes. That's fantastic to hear. Well, we can start wrapping it up a little bit. Um, I'm just curious if you had to, yeah, like put a bow on this and give one point or two points to the new climber or the indoor climber. Like, why should indoor competitive climbers care about climbing in outdoor spaces and indoor spaces? What what would be your like main talking point on on advocacy for these folks? I've always thought of nature as as permanent, you know, it's like, oh, it's always going to be there. It's a given. And in recent years and with climate change and all of these things, I think that has that perspective has definitely changed in, in my own mind. And I think that's something that we can personally combat, you know, um, on a small scale that, you know, helps on a larger scale. And that's why I would say that it, this, this type of work is really important um, and protecting our outdoors and loving our spaces especially in like desert landscapes like Utah has, it's just really delicate out there. And, um, you know, learning how to navigate that is really, really important, especially if we want to continue enjoying this for the rest of our time. <laughs> all right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can, that you can become a member at, but, you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year. And after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org. So check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you wanna do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. Really appreciate it. And I'll catch you all next time.